the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You couldn't just call balls and strikes and be considered a wholly faithful member of the party. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. Many on the right, if not most, see the, the ex-GOPers as being led by the Jennifer Rubens and the Rick Wilsons. That person is skeptical of right. what track you're on. They think that you have gone to crazy town. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. Thank you for joining me again today. A quick word before we dive into today's 180 story, though, I want to let you know that if you hear any faint noises in the background, it is because my husband was not able to take the kids anywhere due to the fact that Governor Inslee just shut down all restaurants and recreational facilities in Washington State to slow the spread of COVID-19. Uh, I'm sure you listening at home or in the car, if you're blessed enough to still be going to a job, are in the same boat. You you get what I'm saying. So little noises in the background. That's, that's what's going on. And... Um, I just want to say about all the craziness that's going on with the pandemic, we are all in this together, and most of you listening are American, and even if you're not American, we're pretty much all in the same boat in this, so hold tight. Um, I was thinking yesterday, because, I mean, there was just a lot of anxiety. (laughs) I was thinking yesterday about what Jesus said. He said uh, in Matthew 6, I think, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So if you have things that you are grateful for today that are going well this minute, focus on those things and practice gratitude. With that, we can get back into our normal routine. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I interview on occasion people who have changed political parties. I think it is a very interesting phenomenon. It is a phenomenon worth exploring. It matters a great deal in terms of how elections unfold and who eventually gets into office and party politics basically run our country. So, This is important stuff that we're dealing with. We've done Democrat to Republican, Republican to Libertarian, that sort of thing. In the last two episodes, we got the the inside scoop on what Libby Emmons, who is now a senior editor at the Post Millennial, congratulations, Libby, and um, David Marcus, who's a New York correspondent for the Federalists. We got a you know inside look at how they left the progressive theater community and then came sort of into the trenches of conservatism, mostly for David and definitely in terms of the culture war and the pushback against the left socially for Libby. Um, David took a while to come around to being Trump friendly, which is something we discussed in his episode, but he's there and he used to support Democrats. So it's a very interesting 180 story. Today, today we have one of those genuine dyed in the wool stalwart conservatives who decided apparently that enough is enough with the grand old party. Some people say that if you don't support Trump, that you're some sort of traitor. And if you don't support the direction he's taking the party, then you're some sort of traitor. And you're actually, um, I can't remember what exactly the word is, but you're not, you're not, you're not an authentic conservative. So this is a, this is a very hot button issue. And 
Interestingly, three and a half years, almost three and a half years later, it's still very, very relevant because the people who felt a certain way in 2016, generally speaking, still feel that certain way in 2020. Um, the, the consternation about Trump and his nomination for the party and eventual election into the Oval Office, um, turned into what seems like a significant exodus, at least among a certain class of pundits and influencers. So what's behind it and why should we care? My next guest here is going to hopefully elucidate the, the bizarre creature, the, the boogeyman that is the anti-Trump conservative, weirdly immune to the center of gravity in the Oval Office, pulling in everyone from Marco Rubio to Rand Paul. He is a writer like myself. He is the founder and editor of the Liberty Hawk, a center-right publication dedicated um, to the values of individual liberty. He's written for NOQ Report, the Federalist Coalition, and hosts the New Centrist podcast where he navigates a political world that has shifted underfoot while endeavoring to reassert the values of American governance. Justin Stapley, thank you for coming on the 180 cast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get started, if you have not subscribed to the podcast, please do. We release a new episode every Friday, bi-weekly breakdowns where I talk about the news and big ideas and culture. It's a good time. It's interesting. It's worth your time. There are over 800,000 active podcasts online right now. So if you like this podcast and you don't share it with any of your friends, your friends will not find it on their own. Word of mouth is how podcasts grow unless you have a massive budget. Something to keep in mind. Okay, with that, we can move forward. Justin, you say in your in your Twitter bio, your tw- I can say this, Twitter bio, that you are ex-GOP. So What's your background? Why were you in the GOP in the first place? Like what values and ideas did you see the party sharing with you? And then we can go ahead and talk about why you left. Yeah. So um, I was raised here in Utah, um, raised uh, in a Latter-day Saint family, served an LDS mission in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, very conservative uh, culturally, socially, pretty much you name it. And, and I'm, I'm conservative. Um, I've pretty much been a member of the Republican Party as long as I've been active in politics, uh, mostly because I felt like it was um, the platform for founding principles, for limited government, um, and and for modern conservatism. Uh, I've 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 long believed in the two party system. I'm not one of those people that wants to necessarily tear down the two party system. In fact. Um, one of the prominent uh, leaders of my faith back in the 60s said that uh, you need to find a way to work within the two-party system and you need to find a way to be coalitional and to work with others. And so I've long held to that, you know, and and even though I was concerned with the direction that I felt like the party was going uh, under Donald Trump, under his influence, I, I, I even, even in 2016, 2017, I didn't feel like... Um, I should leave the party. I should leave the table or uh, how, to, how does Sean Hannity put it? Uh, take my uh, toys out of the sandbox and go home angry. <laughs> uh, just, just over one politician, you know, um, especially when I believe a lot in local politics. I believe in state politics. Um, there's still plenty of people worth supporting, um, especially here in Utah. And I wanted to try to work within the realities that be. I wanted to try to call Balls and balls and strikes, as it were. Um, but what kind of started changing? I felt like I started noticing that um, you couldn't just call balls and strikes and be considered a wholly faithful member uh, of the party in a lot of ways. Uh, in recent years, it started feeling like the uh, the central premise of the party started migrating from limited governance from the founding principles, from what has, you know, traditionally been the Republican Party platform and more towards just revolving around support for Trump, loyalty for Trump. I mean, you even mentioned there's been some considerable change among politicians, people like Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, especially Lindsey Graham, who have 
in a lot of ways done 180s themselves. I don't know if you could get them on your podcast. That'd be great. I would. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of change in that rhetoric. And um, even among the things that uh, that the talk show host said, I, I talk about in my own podcast how I started listening to Sean Hannity when I was 16 years old. Same. Um, I listened to, to Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, e even 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 a little bit of Michael Savage every now and then. Um, oh, yeah, Michael Savage. Those were good times. Just because, you know, I liked what they had to say. I felt like they were on key. Um, I was very strongly affected by 9-11. Um, and so I supported a lot of uh, President Bush's efforts. I think he went about things. Uh, in some unfortunate ways that kind of, uh, you know, sidetracked us from our mission. Um, but, you know, I, I cared about um, the war on terror. I cared about all these things and uh, that a lot of the, you know, Democrats have always been, you know, pushed against. Yeah. So in but, some sense, it's being, it's being, it's more being against the other guys than even being for the guys you're with. Right. Yeah, and 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 I've noticed just you know ever since Trump arrived, um, and and I and I consider Trump a catalyst. I don't consider him a cause like some people do. Um, I consider him a catalyst who has uh, maybe hastened stuff that was already there. Uh, maybe some uh, disagreements among different conservatives that was already there that just really wasn't punctuated yet. Um, but I've just noticed that there's been a huge change in tone, a huge change in discussion about especially uh, fiscal conservatism, foreign policy. Uh, things have just changed a whole lot. And it kind of sent me reeling a little bit. And I've and like 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 you mentioned in and uh, in, in what I talk about, it's been difficult navigating uh, a shifting <laughs> political landscape and then try to figure out where you belong in it all. Right. Before we continue, today's episode is sponsored by MyPillow. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants you to have an amazing night's sleep. And the great news for you is that you do not have to run out to a germ-filled store to get it. You can go online to MyPillow.com and take a teeny tiny quiz. It's just a few questions that tells you exactly what level of fill you need in your light, fluffy, yet moldable MyPillow for a completely pain-free sweaty face free deep nights sleep for example i have a yellow level fill it's wonderful do not rely on your pancake or your hot sweaty feather pillow any longer especially as the warmer months creep up life is too too stressful for all of us right now to be skimping on the things we need for a good night's sleep. You can get great, great discounts on all my pillow products on mypillow.com by clicking on the listeners specials. Listeners specials get deep discounts on my pillows, mattress toppers, bed sheets, pillowcases, towels, even more than that, even dog beds. And for 180 casters like yourself, Mike is offering the buy one, get one free for the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. That is an excellent deal. So you can get one for yourself and one for your spouse if you have one. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty. So your kids might literally be moved out of the house before this warranty expires. That's kind of incredible. And then you'll really get a great night's sleep. Am I right? Yeah, I think I'm right. MyPillow is also extending their 60-day money-back guarantee, so orders placed between now and the end of March will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through June 1st, 2020. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets. That's soft, breathable Egyptian cotton. It's very nice. Plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST, that's 180CAST, or call 800-506-2641 for these great specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST and let them know we sent to you. All right. With that, we were talking about things changing underfoot and uh, you were sort of hinting at political homelessness. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> I want to go back to sort of what you said about uh, things changing sort of even after the election, because most people in the Republican Party, like most people on the right, see anybody who's against Trump as having been against Trump 
from the outset and mm. like ready to like book it and leave the party just right off the bat as soon as he got the nomination. So you're saying it didn't quite work that way for you. Could you tell me a little bit more about like what were the experiences and the specific sort of things you saw that got you thinking, I I know that it's not just about this one guy, but right. you know, I've got to cut ties now. Oh yeah. Well, so yeah. So in the election itself, I just, I chose to vote third party. I didn't vote for either the Democrat or the Republican. Uh, to me, I, I made a choice to stop playing the lesser of two evils game. But I understood that a lot of people did make that choice. 2016 was, in a lot of ways, a lesser of two evils decision. And once President Trump was in office, um, I tried to work within reality. I said, he's the president now. Um, you know, let's, let's, I tried to step aside from the whole never Trump thing and say, let's work within realities and uh, let's, let's hold his feet to the fire and make sure that he does things that he promised to do. And, um, you know, because I feel like if you're going to play the lesser of two evils game, if you're going to make that decision, then you better darn well uh, keep that transactional nature because he's still a lesser evil, quote unquote. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where I started realizing that, well, that was the argument in 2016. Um, I'm not entirely certain people were making that argument um, in an absolute good faith because all of a sudden um, they weren't treating Donald Trump as the quote unquote lesser evil. In fact, in a lot of ways, he was quickly becoming uh, a greater good in the minds uh, of a lot of Republicans. And one of the big things that stood out to me was in his, um, uh, in one of his one of his speeches, I can't remember if it was uh, when he received the nomination or if it was um, uh, after he uh, was first uh, given the oath of office. But he said, "I alone can fix this," mm. and that really stood out to me in contrast with something that Reagan had once said, because Reagan said, "We shouldn't we shouldn't give faith to trust me government. We should trust our values." And we should hold our leaders accountable to our values. And mm. I, I continuously saw this transactional nature that's traditionally been such a big aspect of the relationship between the conservative base and conservative leadership. That started to go away and it quickly was becoming, you know, whatever Trump's position was in a given day. Whatever he said on a given day, we need to adjust ourselves because we need to support him because he's our president. And I think that's kind of what really started first creating this discomfort with uh, continuing membership in the Republican Party and and with being part of what was going on is um, I don't I don't feel like the way that we should view the president, the way we should view any leader is as our leader our president. He's the president. He's the leader. And we need to hold him accountable to us because he works for us, as opposed to we are this, you know, uh, broad-based support group that's just supposed to prop him up in power. And mm, But do you think, do you think some of this, though, is, is coming more from more from a place of, of like patriotism though, that, that a lot of people mean this in a way like he is our president because we're all Americans and because we're all Americans, we want him to succeed. Oh, I think, I think that's where a lot of it is, is coming from and starting. I think that most people started out supporting Trump for good reasons. I'm not, I'm not one of those people there. There's a lot of people in my fellow quote unquote, never Trump movement, if you want to call it that, um, who, like to act as if who you voted for is this huge test of character and it means, you know, something huge moving on. And I'm like, you know, I, I understand. I, I have friends, I have family who voted for Trump. I totally get it. I feel like 2016 was a hard year. I think this year is going to be a hard year. And I think everybody has to come to their decisions in their own way and to just do whatever helps assuage their conscience and helps them feel like they did what they needed to do. And and I think that I think that in a lot of ways, because the pushback from the left has been so over the top in so many ways, 
that it's caused people to rush into a siege mentality and to um, take what probably started as patriotic support and probably started as um, a good faith. And now we're starting to make excuses because we don't want to step out of rank. We don't want to um, feel like we're like, like you said earlier, being traitors or treasonous or all these different kind of things. Cause that's kind of what I've noticed is as I tried to call balls and strikes, as I tried to say, okay, I supported Trump on this, but not so much on that. All of a sudden, I was getting all of these uh, ad hominem attacks thrown at me. I was a conservative. I was a, a Democrat plant. I was a, a liberal who just didn't know what he stood for. I needed to get out of the party. I needed to get out of the conversation. And it was so interesting how the vitriol just raised up to 10 anytime I said anything even hinting at negative uh, towards the president. And and I think that that what has disappointed me is the loss of nuance. We should be able to say the president did this good. I support that. But then go over and say, you know what? But this whole, some of this fiscal conservative stuff is, that has kind of been abandoned, that's not good. You know, I mean, it's like right now, uh, I should be able to come forward to fellow conservatives and say a trillion dollar deficit is bad. Right. And I should be able to say that. And we did have a trillion dollar yeah. deficit last last year. Yes, we did. <laughs> we did. Exactly. And I mean, it's like, you know, Mark Sanford, that's pretty much what his only message was as a presidential candidate was, hey, a trillion dollar deficit is bad. I'm running to try to research some fiscal conservatism in the party. Not only was he pretty much ignored, but the primary in his home state was canceled so that he had no platform to run on at all. Mm. And he wasn't saying anything that was that was anti-Trump from a, a Democrat perspective or liberal perspective. He was just saying, let's reassert our actual conservative values. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's so interesting, like, because now we're talking about massive relief packages because of COVID-19. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm the only one. I feel almost like, should I even go there? Should I even bring up the fact <laughs> right? that like, should I even bring up the question of who is going to pay for all of this? I mean, I know it's, yeah. I know it's a crisis. I know it's a national emergency. It, it genuinely is. But mm -hmm. also, we're going to have to figure out if it's an emergency, that means that you've got to put in some austerity measures somewhere else because, you know, and right. put, put some plans in place for where you're going to cut to make up for this because that's just what happens when you have an emergency, whether on a state level or a local level or a household level. That's just kind of what you do. I mean, and it really speaks to, I think, how how much the party has shifted on that, that I even have to be like, like feel awkward at all bringing up the idea that we might need to make some changes in order to pay for all of this spending. Oh, yeah. I remember... Oh, shoot. Even as far away as a year ago, um, having a conversation with somebody about um, fiscal conservatism and the, the, they made the comment, well, say what you want about Trump. He's done so well with the economy. Mitt Romney couldn't have brought up back this amazing of economy. And I was like, well, if you take a step back, in some ways, Trump has continued some of the policies that Obama was using. We got deficit spending. We've got arbitrarily held low interest rates in zero. a lot of ways. We're at zero percent now. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so that's and I says at some point we're going to have a real crisis, and we're not going to have the mechanisms that we normally use to get out of that because we're already using them. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you're talking about right now. Instead of just raising, instead of lowering interest rates from five percent to two and a half percent, we're having to lower them from two and a half percent. To zero percent. Yeah, and the and stock and, market didn't didn't actually respond that well because they were like, well, no. this is the best you can do. So things must be, you know, we must be on our way to hell in a handbasket at this point because there's nowhere else to go from here. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's why and that's why it's important to be able to have these conversations. And it's important to not get a little bit too raw, raw boostery about support of the president, even if it starts in a patriotic place. Because we need to hold our leaders' feet to the fire. Um, and I think one of the big differences I noticed is um, President Bush, we were even in a huge time of war, even when we rallied around him and rallied around the flag. When the recession came around, we still felt like we could speak out and say, hey, 
we shouldn't be bailing people out. Hey, we shouldn't be doing this. Hey, there was mistakes that were made in Iraq. What the heck? What happened here? People still felt they could speak out against a sitting Republican president and still be considered Republicans in good standing. Yeah, and I think it's important to sort of have this conversation because a lot of people feel like the the proverbial frog in in water, even though that's not literally a thing. Um, yeah. But like, you know, the, the frog in boiling water and you don't realize quite so much, quite how much things have changed because so much of it is focused on the optics and sort of owning the libs and how President Trump yeah. responds to people who are talking on cable television because we know that he walks ro- watches a lot of cable television and listens to people like Sean Hannity and things like that. Like so much of the focus is on the optics and on the sort of... Um, reality TV show aspect of the presidency. And I think now with the crisis with COVID-19, we're really seeing, we might start seeing people maybe like wake up a little bit and realize Mm -hmm. how much we've been wrapped up in the shallow things and how far we've drifted away from the actual principles of conservatism that so many of us, like you said, started out like in good faith, wanting to, wanting to promote, um, But I want to circle back really quickly to something you said about Trump and the loyalty. I want to ask you if you think um, that a lot of this has sort of trickled down, this loyalty rhetoric has sort of trickled down from from people in the Senate and in the House um, and members of the administration who have needed Trump to get on board with their agenda and need to Mm. say things that are very flattering of President Trump in order to make that happen. And then, of course, people see that on TV and hear that on the radio. And my thought is that that's kind of what's influencing it a lot more than what people are saying in the Twitterverse, because like a lot of people, most people aren't on Twitter, like having these shouting matches. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's that's been another aspect that I've found very interesting is um, you can have local races, state races that have almost nothing to do with Trump. And yet uh, there has to be a certain, uh, you know, nod to the president made by uh, people running for office in order to get support from uh, the people. Uh, For whatever reason, President Trump has been able to, in an amazing way, uh, coalesce conservative and Republican voters around him to where he really can control the voting block. Circling back to uh, Mark Sanford, it was interesting watching when he was running for re-election, how, you know, here you have uh, an individual member of Congress who I think his rating was upwards of 90% conservative, 90% voting in favor along with uh, Trump's provisions and whatnot. And yet, simply because Trump offered a tweet against Mark Sanford, he couldn't even make it out of a primary. And uh, there's just a lot of uh, really diehard support for the president. And because of that, it's like you said, politicians in in all places, you know, members of Congress, they have to say nice things about Trump, get get that support there so they can get support for their agendas. And, And a lot of ways, it feels like it becomes a feedback loop where, you know, well, they support them, so we support them, so they support them, so we all support them. And it just kind of continues on to where people, I mean, members of the United States Senate, I think, live daily in fear of a bad tweet from the president. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I listen to uh, Jonah Goldberg and David French a lot, and they travel in those circles, and they say often that they they hear very different stories in private than what a lot of these politicians are willing to say in public. And it's been really interesting to watch that aspect of it all. And I've often said, in so many ways, this is all a perfect storm. I mean, a lot of people try to boil it down to one factor here, one factor there, and things have just combined in so many ways. And, you know, I I, I anger a lot of the people that follow me on Twitter and other social media that are more left-leaning because I call out the Democrats for uh, just as many things that they've done that have led to all of this. In fact, I often say that the Democrats have been the worst possible opposition party to how this has all gone down Mm -hmm. because they have... Consistently promoted things that are not true and and over-exaggerated. Yeah, they've been hysterical. It's been been over the top. I mean, 
I, I've, I've made no bones about the fact that I don't like Trump. I don't like the direction he's taken the party. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I'm not going to vote for him this year. But he is not Hitler. He's not a dictator. He's not, <laughs> you know, supporters aren't Nazis. The red hat isn't the new white hood. I mean, these the, the ice is not should not be removed because it's some sort of Gestapo. All of this is just over-the-top rhetoric that is just absurd, especially when they were uh, the Democrats were so um, indignant when we would call out Obama for some of the things that he did. For sure. So you said before that you think that Trump is sort of a catalyst, and then you, you said just now that you think a lot of this is a perfect storm. If Trump hadn't been the nominee in 2016, do you think you would still be ex-GOP, or would you still be within the party fighting for sort of liberty-centered values? Oh, you know, it's hard to say because... Um, I would say that in 2016, I'd be more likely to say, you know, yes, if, 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 if you get Trump out of the way, I'm a Republican for life. But like I said, I think a lot of this has existed. A lot of the, the difficulties, I think that um, intellectual conservatism, our roots at understanding uh, what we actually believe. I think that um, in a lot of ways between the talk shows and between lots of, uh, I mean, uh, and frankly, a lot of this started with Newt Gingrich back in the back in the nineties. The 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 contract almost, with America, right? Am I getting that? Yeah, in some ways, I think there was a lot of really really good things about the contract of America, but the rhetoric that accompanied it kind of created this anti liberalism that has kind of taken over the spirit of the party, and and mm. it seems like people are more concerned with what they're against than what they're actually for, and so it's hard to say. To me, I it mean, seems like much, it seems like politics has always been that way. Like when you vote for president, right. you're voting against the other eye, right? It, it, oh yeah. To me, it kind of seems like it's always been that way. But in 2016, it was like everything was like magnified by a hundred, right? Because of the so extremes. it's hard to say because, like I said, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't leave the party because of Trump. I left the party because the way the party has behaved under Trump. And so, I mean, if Marco Rubio was the president, if Ted Cruz was the president. Nikki Haley, you know, I, I, I've always liked those individuals and the party I'm sure would have behaved a lot different under those presidents. So maybe right now, three years later, I'd still be a member of the party, but who knows whether the divisions that I've noticed would eventually have shown themselves. But, you know, I, I've often said though, after I left the party that I see this as a separation and hopefully not a divorce. Mm. I just felt like I'd reached a point where nothing I was saying, nothing I was doing was changing any minds. I was essentially in exile already. And I, I, I felt like as I took stock of where I was at as a writer, where I was at as trying to be an influencer, was it aiding or, or, or taking away from my perspective, trying to make a broader argument and, and honestly, I felt like I could reach more people on the center. I could reach more people even on the center left and even among mainstream Democrats. If I struck out, if I decided to be an independent and I just stood as an independent voice so that I could argue for my principles disentangled from where I feel like the party, the Republican Party has gone under this, this, this shift towards Trumpism. As far as ideas are concerned like i have held for a long time that ideas do matter like these principles that we're talking about individual liberty personal responsibility fiscal responsibility things like that ideas matter but do you think that what's happened in the last three or four years has short, sort of shown that maybe people don't care about ideas as much as conservatives like you and i thought that maybe they they do care more about the individual and how that person makes them feel and the confidence that they instill in them in terms of, you know, the mission of, for instance, making America great again. That really, really resonated with so many people, this idea that America was in decline and that Trump was going to, to come into office and make America great again, especially in terms of, um, trade and and bringing back manufacturing and and 
bringing back all, you know, coal plants that are shut down and things like that. Like, do you think that maybe conservatives and like Jonah Goldberg and David French, you mentioned that they've sort of overestimated how much ideas actually matter to the voting public? Oh, I don't know if it's just that, um, I don't know if it's just as simple as saying that ideas don't matter to people. Um, I just think that we underestimated how powerful the populist strain was um, on the American right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we underestimated how deeply felt the grievances are and and almost to the extent that um, the victim mentality that we see in the left has just as equally infiltrated on the right and and how easy it was for someone to come along like a Donald Trump who could um, present themselves as an avatar for our anxieties and to go out there and and to quote unquote fight and make a stink and 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 get angry and be belligerent drain the swamp and, exactly and um you know yeah so yeah i definitely feel like um i feel like we thought that everybody was on board with this kind of intellectual program and we underestimated how much people were on board with that totally but at the same time i think that ideas still matter because even within all this framework, there's a lot of the uh, uh, phrases and the optics of of these ideas of this intellectual conservatism that people will still say. Um, people still call themselves constitutionalists. People still talk about um, the founding fathers. People still talk about um, the writers that that inspired the intellectual conservatism that launched the modern conservative movement and kind of broke off from the direction that Eisenhower was going uh, back in the fifties and sixties. And, and so I think there's a lot of um, cognitive dissonance going on where people want to be able to say, we're going to go this route, but we do still believe these things. And in some ways there needs to almost be an awakening uh, to realize how some of those things do not jive with each other. And we need to kind of, refocus ourselves again a little bit. And I think that that is still possible. And that's why I write. That's why I talk. That's why I I try to assert my principles and my values. Because in the end, I think that um, just trying to hold to what I believe to be true is going to be what endures, even if, you know, it doesn't, uh, it kind of leaves me in the wilderness in the short run. So what does the future look like for the the ex-GOP crowd or the GOP separated crowd? Because many on the right, like I said in my intro, if not most, see the the ex-GOPers as being led mm. by the Jennifer Rubens and the Rick Wilsons and the Bill Crystals of the world, the quote-unquote principled conservatives, like, you know, you know those those principled conservatives who let socialists yeah. speak at their conferences, they see that, you know, your crowd is being led by those people. So how could possibly anything good come out of that? Like, let's say that you're, you're very, you know, let's say somebody, the listener at home is like very Trump supportive, but also believes in all of the things that you believe in, in terms of fiscal responsibility and limited government and things like that. That person is skeptical of right. what track you're on. They think that you have gone to crazy town. Right. Yeah. And I, um, I did, I did attend the, uh, summit on principled conservatism a few weeks ago. And, um, I didn't, at, at least in that specific summit, I didn't uh, notice anybody, uh, talking about, uh, socialism. Um, I definitely would have said something if there had been. Yeah. Well, I saw, I saw a, uh, a, a speaker list and, and one of the people I follow who's, who's reputable was saying, uh, this person's actually pretty socialist. <laughs> and I don't maybe remember who it was though. So. I, yeah. I, I, there was a lot of speakers that kind of did a, a round robin of lots of different panels. Um, so for all I know, one of the people there could advocate for socialism outside of it, but they definitely didn't do it there. At, le- at least as so much as I recall, um, but I did have to push back against some things. In fact, uh, when I wrote kind of my um, observation of the summit, I did some significant pushback against Rick Wilson's approach. But it's hard talking about what the future looks like. It's it's really kind of interesting. Um, I think I think unless there's some other really dramatic circumstance 
that the future of conservatism is still with the Republican Party. Um, I think a lot of people discount how resilient uh, our main political parties are. The fact that the Democrats uh, in the Civil War broke off, was able to fight a war against us and then come back and then have a president from that party a few generations later demonstrates just how resilient these parties are. Mm-hmm. So for even if you take a complete uh, over-the-top view of the Trump presidency, I think sometimes it's almost too much to say that the Republican Party is over. But I think there's going to have to be some realignments. There's going to have to be some taking stake. And I think in some ways there's going to have to be a restoration of thought if the Republican Party is going to be a relevant party moving forward, because I'm not convinced that Trump has enough of the country behind him to have us reach that level that we did under Reagan, where we were winning 48 states. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, I, I I would like to see us find leaders who can not only maybe do a better job of recognizing the anxieties and and, and speaking to those anxieties, um, but also can take a conservative argument to the entire country and can actually win the country over to a conservative vision. Because I don't think we're going to fix a lot of the problems that we have in our country if we just have two disparate, angry, hostile camps that are constantly going back and forth with the control of the government and just canceling out what each other does. Because mm-hmm. the sad reality is... Well, the status quo is to keep growing government. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. We know that that's the case. Right. And unfortunately, I feel like that has continued um, under President Trump. I think it's continued in different ways. Um, there's been lots of talk about his deregulation. And yeah, he likes to go after the swamp and stuff like that. But for how for however much he's reeled back power from the bureaucracy, he hasn't given it up from the office itself. He's centralized mm-hmm. presidential authority in the White House, but Congress is still not not where it needs to be in the constitutional framework. Well, part of that I think is is that Congress needs to step up and reassert reassert their authority under the constitution they oh, punted yeah. so much to the presidency it's almost like can you can you really blame trump or even blame obama for that for right. being like oh you gave me all this yeah. power um you know they're not just going to hand it back oh yeah exactly i mean that's the nature of power right <laughs> um and that's something that i all that i also tick off a lot of my left leaning followers because i'll point out that hey you know i'm frustrated with where republicans have gone in the last 4 years but the Democrats have kind of gone the route of, of over-the-top central authority progressivism over 100 years ago. You want to talk about Trump. You guys think he's the worst president in the world. Let's talk about Woodrow Wilson. Right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about you know FDR and, and LBJ and how much they've expanded government. Um, and so that's where, where I would like to see things, is I would like to see things go to a place where we recognize that regardless of who is the president, the presidency itself is the problem. Uh, We need to reel back that executive authority. We need to reassert Congress. We need to elect members of Congress who are going to be institutionalists and and not just, uh, you know, do whatever the president says or do whatever the party says or, or do whatever the, 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 the party leadership says they need to go in there and realize we're, we're members of Congress and we need to make sure that Congress gets reasserted. And we need to take back powers. I mean, you know, because, you know, for however much I rail against uh, the the use of the emergency powers to uh, levy tariffs, I was saying the same things when Obama put us in the Paris Accord without a vote by Congress. Uh, you know, right. uh, the president just of any party continues to just wield over the top power and authority. And that needs to start being the focus, not who is the president is going to save our our republic. It's making it so that our presidential elections are less consequential, period. Do you subscribe to the theory that things can, you know, even though it's sort of a perfect storm and it's not just about Trump, that things could sort of go back to how they were before Trump after Trump leaves office because there are a lot of people that subscribe to this sort of anomaly theory that Trump is just like a freak, freak of nature, you know, freak of political nature. Mm -hmm. And then when he's out, then we can 
fill that vacuum and put things back to normal? Well, I mean, as opposed to saying he's a freak of nature, I'd say he's definitely a force of nature. Right. <laughs> and and using using that uh, that thinking, we can talk about it as like, you know, a storm or or something crazy where, you know, I mean, like New Orleans never got rebuilt back to the way it was before Katrina, mm-hmm. but it didn't necessarily lose its identity. It didn't lose what it was. Um, and I think that uh, we need to learn. We need to take stock. We need to think about what's happened and we need to apply those uh, uh, lessons moving forward. And I think there's a difference between just trying to go back to some sort of utopian past that probably never existed. And, but, but there's a difference between that and reasserting our core values and reasserting um, an intellectual tradition that goes back decades and decades and generations. Even Reagan Mm -hmm. was building on something that had been slow building for almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit more skeptical though. And, and here's why I see like, you know, Orrin Cass just launched the, um, the American compass think tank. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is an effort to coalesce all of these anxieties that got Trump elected essentially and mm-hmm. turn them into public policy that caters toward those. It's it's more uh, critical of the market saying that there's a lot of times where the markets don't function the, the way that we should and, and governments need to, to step in and, you know, governments need to use their power to support families versus policies that, that tear families apart and, and, and basically a lot of policies to grow government mm-hmm. and grow spending. And, you know, you've got Tucker Carlson on every single weeknight on Fox News um, speaking to these anxieties and being sort of just like right down the middle with right, you know, right in alignment in an alignment with what I just said and yeah. what Warren Cass is trying to do and what Marco Rubio is trying to do. Um, I, do you, but do you, I mean... Do you think maybe I'm overestimating the direction that that is taking the party? Because it seems like if they can pull it together and coalesce this stuff into a more, a sort of big government, um, more paternalistic state where it's like founded on the values of we need family and we think marriage is good and we think having kids is good mm-hmm. and we want religious liberty, um, we're going to use big government to get there. Am I overestimating that? No, I think I think you're being honest, uh, uh, realizing what the realities is going on right now. Because, you know, I could be I could be a minority for the rest of my life with with my thoughts and principles. I recognize that. Um, I I I have I have a one foot in the conservative movement, another foot in the liberty movement, and so I, I travel in some of the circles that feel like that they've been out of power and out of the conversation for a long, long time, and they probably will never be in the conversation. My my hope is that we don't have to go through a period like happened in the um, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, where you essentially had 30 years of expansive growth, expansive government, regardless of which party it was, before we start into a rekindling of limited government thought. Because we saw, I mean, that was already so damaging to a republic, and we're still trying to reel back some of the stuff that's happened. So I hope that that doesn't happen. Maybe it does. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that once once Trump is uh, not president or 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 is isn't the leader, whether it's this year or in four years, I think there's going to be a little bit more recentering. Maybe the recentering isn't as much as I would like, um, mm-hmm. but I hope that it's enough that I can be back at the table again. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. But we'll we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst type situation. <laughs> so what's, last question, what's your elevator pitch for someone who who thinks that the, the Tuckersonians and the MAGA leaders um, are onto something with their attitudes toward immigration, towards, you know, pro- protectionism, toward using big government to support traditional values? What's What's your pitch to them, you know, since we both think that ideas do matter and they mm-hmm. do, um, to sort of steer them away from that or begin to point them in a different direction? Well, um, 
if the person's willing to take a straight up conversation, I would pretty much say that central planning is the central feature of socialism. And that if you believe in big government, if you believe in having the economy be wielded by the government, then in some ways you're a pseudo-socialist. And that um, if we are against the Democrats' version of socialism, we should be against our own uh, strange version of it for the same reasons that um, government that can give you anything can take away anything. And that we have to create a, we have to really believe in what the founding vision was, that we want a government that simply creates a free and ordered sphere where we can live and do as we want to do. And that's not going to happen if the government is involved in everything. And then I would ask them, do you want the president in the headlines every single day? Do you want what happens in your daily life determined on which bill is passed? Do you want to feel like every single election is uh, make or break because it's so consequential and who, who gets elected ends up having so many consequences on all of society? Or do you want a government that mostly stays out of your way so that you can live your life as you see fit? I think that's a really good starting place. It's a good answer. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and I'm excited to share this this conversation with my listeners. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. You can follow Justin on Twitter at Justin W. Stapley. That's S-T-A-P-L-E-Y and find his work at thelibertyhawk.com. Check out the new Centrist podcast as well on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, and TuneIn, as far as I know. You can call or text the flip phone if you have thoughts on this podcast at 323-999-1802. So you can text or leave a voicemail. I do love hearing your voice. You can flip out, try to flip my position, or tell me about your own flip-flop. That's 323-999-1802. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast, of course, where I sporadically post sound bites and teasers from the episodes. I will try to do a more consistent job of that going forward. And please give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. It does help share this podcast with the rest of the world. And you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, where I speak my mind on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. I'm also a senior contributor at The Federalist, and I'm also contributing now to The Postmillennial, where you will soon find a heavier dose of my culture and lifestyle content. So brace yourselves. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Yes, I'm stuck in the